0: Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Love Doctor podcast, research-informed advice that can lubricate any conversation about sex. My name is Dr. Leah Tidy, and I'm so glad to have you here. Today on the show, I am sharing my interview with Farzana Doctor, where we talk about non-monogamy, what sexuality looks like in your 40s, and what it means to be, quote-unquote, a good woman. We also discuss her new book that is a collection of poetry used to look the same, I particularly resonated with her poem, Boundaries, and I know it's a topic that a lot of folks have asked me about. But first, today in sex. Team, I don't even know where to begin. Uh, I guess we could talk about abortion rights in the States and how overturning Roe v. Wade would be a horribly sad and unjust thing to happen. But I don't have any hot takes on that, right? I'm sure if you have gone onto any reputable news source, if you have gone on TikTok or Instagram, you have seen so many people who are angry, angry about what's happening. And I agree, I am angry myself and I am tired with the fact that not only a woman's right to choose what to do with her body, but any person who has a uterus and a vulva, that their fundamental human rights to make decisions about their own bodies are being infringed upon. We do not have the same kind of laws or any sort of precedent for people who have penises. And this just directly links to the fact that we live in such a deeply patriarchal society that we feel like we can make laws about women's bodies, about people with vulva's bodies and the choices that they get to make. The also really sad thing is that People are wondering, what am I going to do? If I do have an unplanned pregnancy and I want to get an abortion, is there any safe options for me to do so? We know that when abortions are not safe, they are not legal, the people who pay for them are the people who are trying to access them. And by pay, I mean they have higher rates of uh, death, there's higher rates of all sorts of complications if they're having to go somewhere that's not reputable to get the service done, which should be safe and accessible. And the people who suffer the most are people in lower socioeconomic statuses, uh, BIPOC folks, people who have been pushed to the margins in our society and whose voices have not been given uh, the time that they deserve, have not been given the resources that they deserve, and so are pushed into making really dangerous and difficult decisions the latest news story, video, whichever you want to call it, that I just saw was talking about the border between Detroit and Ontario, and how literally there's a river in between. And that's the difference. That river crossing that bridge, getting to the other side means safe legal abortions or unsafe and illegal abortions, potentially. And You know, it's great, like the article talks about the complications of, you know, maybe people coming to Canada to access abortion services, but that's just a band-aid solution. Not to mention the fact that a lot of people can't travel, can't get that time off work to come to Canada. Amazing, Canada, yes, we want to be able to offer these services to anyone who wants to access them, but this is not a solution when fundamental human rights are being denied. Clearly, I'm upset about it, and I don't really know what to do right i think as a sexual health educator it's something that boggles my mind you know as a woman as someone who has a uterus it it, it is sad and frustrating for it to be 2022 and we're still having this conversation i think that's what i'm most exhausted about i'm like team We are ready to move on. Your religious beliefs, your freedom to speech, absolutely say whatever you want, but that does not mean you get to dictate what other people get to do with their bodies. You can say whatever you want. That's your right, sure. But that does not, not have an impact on the services that should be available to us and the decisions we want to make about our own bodies. All to say, when I'm not, uh, you know, doom scrolling, I've just been watching Heartstopper. Anyone who hasn't watched Heartstopper yet on Netflix, oh, do yourself a favor. Enjoy some queer joy, some love, this really tender moment. And, you know, it's just lovely. It's really what's been getting me through lately. So thank you for listening to my rant. Um, That's all I want to say about that for now, because there are so many resources and people who are doing a really in-depth job talking about these topics. And frankly... I don't have any hot takes to add other than I am adding my voice to the outrage of what is going on. What is interesting, though, and, and it comes up in my interview with Farzana, is talking about what it means to be a good woman. And there's a really beautiful moment where she talks about reading Burnout by the Nagoski sisters. Uh, you might have heard the last term Nagoski. You've talked about Come As You Are, which written by Emily Nagoski. This is also written by Emily Nagoski and her sister, uh, Amelia. And in that Uh, Farzana just says this beautiful thing about how people who have been raised female are taught that our bodies do not belong to us, that our sexuality does not belong to us. And instead, we need to relearn and unlearn all of these really damaging things that we have been taught and to understand that our bodies and what we decide to do with them is our choice. We get to decide what we want to do with them. The conversation with Farzana felt like a bomb to all of the things that are going on in the world right now. The book that we are talking about in it is her new collection of poetry called You Still Look the Same. This is a debut poetry collection. Farzana has uh, written novels before. She was on the podcast last season talking about her book Seven. Highly recommend. Uh, Of course, there are links in the episode description. And what she really talks about is looking at this tumultuous decade of her 40s what I really like about it is that it's accessible poetry. I don't normally read poetry and I found myself really enjoying it, probably because it has to do with sex. I have to talk about breakups and dating and misogyny and all of these weird idiosyncratic things around sex and love. If you want to know more about the book, I have it linked in the episode description, or just listen to this interview with Farzana and, I don't know, revel in like, oh, just how beautifully she expresses herself, and the amount of joy that we had having this conversation. So, good morning, Farzana. How are how are you doing? Well, I guess it's I guess it's still morning for you, but how are you doing today? I'm I'm really well. It is
1: still morning. Uh, I'm doing well. I'm um, really kind of getting geared up for all of this um, that's going to happen soon. The release of the book in a few days. So, yeah, kind of excited to talk about it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I had, I had such a lovely time, uh, reading it. I'm gonna be honest, I don't normally, uh, read poetry, but, you know, even in, as I was starting to read it and like the descriptions from people who had read it before, just, you could tell there was such a sense of, I don't even know what you would say, like aliveness. And it was like really tight and thoughtful. And I would just like leave each one like, hmm, how is that landing in my body? How is that settling? in me. Uh, so I, I really enjoyed reading it and I find like there are certain lines that keep like coming back to me throughout the day. So it's very evocative. Again, I don't know why I'm trying to come up with words being like, aha, I know how to review a book, but I I just to say, I, I really enjoyed it and I'm excited for us to talk about that and about your your journey, but anything you want to say initially about the book or about your process in, in creating it?
1: Well, I'm so glad you enjoyed it. Um, you know, for me, I've been writing poetry my whole life. You know, we start in school and we get a few kind of guides to how we're supposed to write poetry in school. And it's also always been accessible because typically uh, poetry is short. And so I found myself, you know, through my teens and my early, you know, 20s and 30s, and then I just kept going, writing short poems, not really knowing what I was doing, just enjoying the playfulness of it. And as I wrote my novels, I would sometimes stop and use a poem to be able to clarify some of my thoughts about the novel. So I've always written poetry. And, you know, there came this time when I realized I had a lot of poems, and maybe there was a collection. And the poems that I chose for this collection were ones that I wrote or rewrote in my 40s. And the 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 overall kind of theme, I think, is that the 40s for me were really hard, tumultuous, learning, amazing. Like, it was just a very big decade for me in a way that I don't think I experienced before. Mm. So... I write poetry that is, I think, mostly called narrative or lyrical. I like telling stories in whatever I do. So a lot of these poems will tell a story. And perhaps um, that makes it more accessible, too, for a lot of people. I hope it does.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think I think having read Seven as well, have you read your novel? And we've talked about it on the podcast before. It's interesting how you say that sometimes you would write a poem and that would help clarify certain things, right? Like you read the poem about Zainab and it's like, oh, okay. Like you're just, you're hearing echoes of, of seven kind of come into that. And I think that was maybe what was exciting for me. Cause I think initially, I'll, I'll be honest, I was a little like nervous. I'm like, oh my gosh, there's a collection of poems and I'm going to A, read it. B, have something intelligent to say about it. But I think you're right. Like that narrative, lyrical way that you write it made it very accessible. Cause I think I think there's like two ways that we experience our, you know, we're first introduced to poetry. And like you said, in school and you're always like, Oh my gosh, like I don't get it or I'm overwhelmed. And other people, it really resonates for them. And I was definitely those people who were like, I really like poetry. I don't know if I get it. I don't know if like I, I can't craft one myself, but yeah, yeah, something about the style of that was very inviting and, and it wasn't, it wasn't intimidating at all. Once I started reading them.
1: Yes, and I I think sometimes we are taught poetry as young people in a way that makes it feel intimidating. And then we just don't feel very intelligent because we're like, I don't know what's happening here. And there might be a few poems um, where maybe people don't know what's happening. You know, the way that I read poems, um, I often don't know what's happening, but I have been taught Um, a little bit about how to read poetry, and a little bit how to write poetry. And so sometimes I just look for interesting word combinations. And, oh, look at that line break. Why did they do that? Isn't that fun? So I don't know that we're always supposed to get it, right? Some of this, some of this work can be very interior. But maybe we're just supposed to enjoy the words. And there's going to be some poems, I think, that we really connect to or we really feel we understand, and that's great. But they don't all have to be that way in a collection. I I look for just a few poems in each collection that I can really um, either resonate with or enjoy, even Mm -hmm. if I don't understand them.
0: Yeah. I think maybe what what I'm kind of hearing from what you're saying is really emphasizing the pleasure in, in reading it as well, right? I think too often we try and intellectualize or make sense of it instead you're like well was it enjoyable did it bring up something for you and like you said some poems you're like "Eh, that's not my cup of tea and other ones you're like oh like i am i am it is hitting me in a certain way that is speaking to my own you know interior life or experience um and i found that having Read through it, and again, as, as you know, as a a woman who's just entered my 30s, uh, but most of my work when I'm working with people are uh, women who are in their 60s, 70s, 80s, and onward. So I think a lot about women at different ages in their lives. So it was really fascinating for me to think about this decade of the 40s, and I maybe as you're saying, it was a bit of a tumultuous decade for you. So because we're going to talk about sex, because I'm obsessed, and this is what this podcast is all about. But, but yay. <laughs> Tell me a bit about what you learned about your sexuality in your 40s throughout that decade. Yeah, so at the beginning of my
1: 40s I went through a breakup of a long-term relationship and you know as we know those things are gut-wrenching. Mm-hmm. Um you know you I was I was with someone for 13 years and I had always sort of imagined that we'd be together, you know, for our whole lives. And then We had to part ways, and then I was like, hey, I guess I'm going to start dating, (laughs) and I had never really dated in my life before. I had always been one of those people who, like, met somebody, and then I guess we were together. That happened with every previous relationship I'd been in. Mm -hmm. So, you know, at age, I believe it was, like, 41, 42, I... Put on, you know. I went to OKCupid. Um, I put up an online profile. I had to grapple with, oh, what does this feel like to have all my stuff out there where people can see it? I'm also a therapist, and we're supposed to keep everything very private. And mm-hmm. now there was an online dating profile, and then I decided, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna date. I'm gonna date non-monogamously because. I've been learning about non-monogamy. I've been working with non-monogamous clients. I think that this might fit for me. So I started dating non-monogamously. I started dating across the gender spectrum as well, which is something I hadn't done before. My previous um, two relationships had been with women. So it was all about like exploration and possibility. And um, I had really good experiences actually, mostly with online dating. There were only a couple of creepy times. And one of the things that I experienced by dating multiple people at the same time was that I started to learn more deeply about me. Mm. There were these moments where I was dating a variety of people, all really nice people, but the same attachment style. Mm. So (laughs) dating non-monogamously taught me deeper things about attachment theory, which I had already known a little bit about, but Mm. experiential learning is everything, right?
0: (laughs) That's what we call dating, experiential learning. (laughs) That's right. So I was really
1: tuning into all of the ways that my anxious attachment style was impacting me, impacting my relationships, you know, was harming me. Mostly harming me, a little bit helping me. And so that was that was the big deep dive that happened uh, through a couple of years of dating. That's what I learned.
0: Hmm. It's it's interesting that you you talk about attachment style and non-monogamy. Cause I'm I'm just finishing reading Polysecure. And what a a deep dive into understanding our own attachment style. And I think like attachment, you know, you know, anxious and avoidant and secure, like I feel like it's thrown around a lot um, without people understanding the like, the work behind it, right? Like you can probably do like a quiz online of like, which attachment style are you? But like you said, it requires much more of a, a deep dive. And I would recommend Polysecure to, to anyone monogamous or non-monogamous. Um And I agree, even just having read through it myself, like what a – coming to terms with some of our own attachment styles and then also recognizing, and they talk about this explicitly in the book, like, what if there are the same attachment styles across multiple partners? And is that draining in some way because, you know, certain things keep getting triggered or needing to be worked on? And there's something about non-monogamy that you cannot hide from uh, growth and introspection. Like it is yes. integral to to yes. that process because we're
1: not raised with it right so for me i was entering it it was it was completely new so there was a lot to learn there was a lot to question it was through questioning all the things that i understood about relationships that i gained a better sense of what i wanted and needed right like i wasn't just being i wasn't in autopilot anymore and that was one of the gifts of
0: dating non-monogamously. yeah that's so uh resonates as well. Because I think, as you were saying before, and I think this is experience for many people, is that you kind of end up in relationships, right? You're like, oh, and this person, and oh, no, we're kind of interested. In, oh, and oh, next thing you know, like, oh, I I guess you're my partner. Like I guess this is what's happening. We're dating now. Um and that intentionality piece, um, I think is so important for any kind of relationship that we enter into. But for many of us it's not until we're experimenting with non-monogamy and kind of opening ourselves up in those different ways that we're like, huh, who are the kind of people that I want to be with and what kind of person do I want to be as a partner with other people and recognizing that that can be different from person to person. Uh, But that to me, that's that intentionality piece.
1: Yeah. And you know, one of the
0: other things that I
1: found was that many of the people I I was dating, uh, that, you know, they were also intentionally non-monogamous, most of them. And many of them had pretty good skills that I started to learn, right? So I remember after going on a first date, I got a follow-up text from someone saying, that was a really lovely time. Would you like to do this again? And I thought, wow, what a beautiful direct question. (laughs) I wasn't used to doing that myself yet. And I learned how to do that. Mm -hmm. So... um, there were, there were lots of new skills I learned from other people who were thinking very deeply about what
0: they wanted to.
1: Not everyone was doing it so well,
0: but some of them were, yes. Yeah, definitely. Choosing who to learn from in those moments, being like, oh, I definitely won't do that. Yeah, I think there's something about that, that almost like needing to be direct, right? Because I think if you are juggling multiple partners, there just isn't enough time in your day for ambiguity. It's like, how much time do we have to dedicate to each other? Where are we seeing this moving forward? In some ways, I've found that dating non-monogamously, because you start with such an initial conversation of like, let's lay the groundwork. Here's all of our communication. Uh, in some ways, it kind of that like new relationship energy or excitement, not dampened when I say dampened, but it's just, it's a very different kind of feeling I found where in monogamy, it's like, well, do they like me or do they not? And is it okay if I hold her hand or not? Whereas in non-monogamy quite often, you're like, what are your boundaries? Like, is it okay if we do this? What are you comfortable with in public? Like some of that mystery is taken away. There was was so much to learn for me around
1: consent, not just consent around sexuality, but consent around relationality. Mm. And that was good for me.
0: Yeah. Talk to me a bit about deciding to uh, to be monogamous again. Like I think there's a there's an idea. It's it's almost like the queer agenda. We have a non monogamous agenda. We want everyone to be non monogamous. <laughs> um, yeah, uh,
1: yeah. And for those for those two years, I was definitely feeling very committed to being non monogamous, and it was all I could read about and talk about with people and. I was declaring myself non-monogamous. It seemed really important at the time. But by the end of the two-year period of really experiencing it, I realized that there were some things that weren't working for me. Mm -hmm. Um, So I mentioned the attachment style piece. Um, One of the things I noticed was that I was having a lot of trouble writing during that period of time. Mm -hmm. Um, I had a lot of anxious energy that was really pent up around all of those things i was learning and deciding and doing and i i felt like oh there's a way that for me monogamy felt just a little bit more simple and i it wasn't using as much of my energy now monogamy isn't simple no relationship is simple every energy takes every <laughs> every relationship takes energy of course but i really felt like my life did simplify. Um, And I'm curious about why I was having so much trouble writing during those couple of years. And there's this idea that like sexual energy and creative energy is kind of all from the same source. Mm. For me, that feels right and true. And so just feeling less distracted by fewer people, well, being distracted just by one person, distracted less meaning like, my my energy was just going in one direction instead of two or three. Felt better to me. I felt like I could pull my energy back in, and I could get more of my own writing done. I still don't understand that completely. I still think that there's so many merits to non-monogamy, but I felt like my life simplified somehow when I decided to be monogamous again.
0: Mm-hmm. Hmm. It's fascinating to think about our energy sources. And i it's funny, I'm kind of reflecting on times where I'm feeling really creative and fulfilled. I'm like, okay, well, am I really interested in sex at that point? Because I'm feeling like all of this energy is going into something else. Yeah. I think there's just, again, like that awareness of also like what we need in relationships. And I think there could be some people who would like have an opinion that like, well, once you're monogamous, there's like No going back. This is who you are no matter what. And we know that that's not the case, right? And we know that that can change and be fluid throughout our lives. Like, I think we're just so caught in this binary idea, you know, when we could talk about gender, sexual expression, relational orientation, but being able to really unpack, okay, how is this actually manifesting in my life? And how is that impacting the other things that I love and need to put energy into?
1: Yes. And I think for me, um, you know, when I was in connection with anybody, so much of my energy was going out, I had a hard time compartmentalizing, um, Mm -hmm. like my own individual life and work and all the people. And so it felt, it felt noisy to me. Also, some of those connections um, were not very securely attached connections. And so that makes it even noisier for someone who has an anxious attachment style. So, I think it it could have been workable. I would have just had to learn probably how to pull back my energy if I had wanted to continue. Mm-hmm.
0: And I think maybe that's a part of it too—is really emphasizing that importance of of choice, right? That you still had that choice to be like, "This feels noisy. This feels like it is consuming so much of my." life and capacity. And yeah, if you if, if you're not feeling securely attached to people, like there's a lot of mental energy to being like, are they going to message me back? Are we going to go out? Uh, like, how are they with their other partners? Am I going to run into like my metamor and how like complicated is this all going to be? You know, like having, you could, t- yeah, having been there myself, I'm like, huh? Yeah, it does take a lot out of it. Right. And I think there's also non-monogamy as like, a lifestyle that people choose, and non-monogamy as a, this is my orientation. And there are differences in how we relate to those as well. Yes.
1: And, you know, some of those um, questions that you kind of mentioned, I think they get easier over time, right? Mm -hmm. Like the fifth time you've met a metamor, it's no biggie. But the first time, maybe the second time, there's a lot of energy that you're putting into thinking about how you want that to go.
0: Definitely. Uh, and we'll have uh metamore just so people know, uh, that is your like lovers lover. So you're not in a relationship with them, but you share a partner is generally, we'll have a a list of, of terminology down below for in the episode (laughs) description. So people, uh, can, can know what, what's going on. I want to shift gears now. And I really want to talk about your book. You still look the same you know we've we've talked a bit about your 40s about poetry um in general but uh, there were a few that really that really grabbed me i mean i really enjoyed reading 43 myself to me it felt like um this is kind of a framing for it uh, and again totally my own interpretation of having read it uh and also swipe left which i mean as people can tell from the title very evocative uh but yeah like tell tell me a bit about I guess I'm always interested in knowing how do you start placing all of these poems in like a narrative structure as a storyteller yourself? How do you place them in relation to each other? And I don't know, to me, 43 was like, oh, this should be the first poem. And I'm like, well, I I don't know. This is just my interpretation having read it.
1: You know, it could have been, it really could have been. And it was, there was a lot of intentionality about the sections. So each section um, starts with um, a title that is the same, right? Um, so the title is therapy, homework, and then some kind of a question, mm-hmm. and then a haiku, a haiku as an answer. So that one actually appears halfway through the book, and it's the ending of the second section. So the second section um, has to do with self-searching, middle age mm-hmm. self-searching. And the, well, I'll, I'll just say that the first section is about losses of all kinds. The mm. second section is about self-searching. The third section is about trauma and the last section is about healing. So those are very broad categories. So that was how I started to think about what would fit in which section. Mm. And to me, 43 is um, very much about the self-searching. Mm. It's about like figuring out what's important and what are all the other voices out there, and do they matter? Um, so that was that was how I sort of intentionally put them together. Mm-hmm. But it is a launching point, forty three, isn't it? Like this the, the, the poem ends with um, when I finally awake, I am forty three. all that remains a pair of scuffed sneakers, forgotten size twelve dress. I don this armor, step outside. And so to me, to deal with the next section, which is trauma, mm. uh, which is what I was starting to deal with at 43, mm. um, I needed some armor, I needed some self-acceptance. Part of um, the size 12 business that comes up in this poem is about self-acceptance around the body mm. and body size. Yeah, there's there's a lot about body image in that one. Uh,
0: that imagery of the armor, right, of of stepping out, having donned that. I think that just spoke to me as like a woman in general. What are the things that we put on before we go and enter the world with all these different things that impact us? And then you start layering all sorts of different aspects of identity, right? Like I'm a white cis woman entering into the world. So my armor, really, it's it's not much that I have to like hold up in order to like move through this world. And so I'm I'm interested as well that you've, like you said, you started with that armor and that imagery as you led into the third section talking about trauma and, and you, you know, you sent her talking about Katna, which is a very, uh, a central theme in, in your book seven as well. Uh, folks will have listed in the episode description the interview that I did with Farzana back in, was that September or something? Yeah. yeah but highly recommend reading or listening to the audiobook of seven. I love the audiobook. Um, But yeah, to me, those, those sections really spoke to each other hearing the book, but I'll, I'll to go back to the, to the armor piece. Tell me about not getting too much into maybe your own trauma, whatever you feel comfortable sharing, but what was that like needing that physical representation and sharing that of this is my armor and now I can start working through my trauma and this is our way to healing.
1: Mm Hmm. Yeah, you know, I think it's it's a complicated thing because, you know, we need armor for so many things. The the trauma section speaks to imprints of racist bullying and patriarchal violence and katna. And I think for me, you know, I that that armor is so unconscious at this point. Right. I walk out into the world and I know that as a brown woman, I'm I'm seen in a particular way as a cis woman. I'm seen in a particular way as a middle aged woman. I'm seen in a particular way. I carry with me a lot of privilege as well. And that, you know, that ends up being a kind of armoring as well. Mm. I think that all of us, um, you know, in our intersectionalities, we we have to walk through the world both being authentic, but being very authentic. Inauthentic at the same time, right? Mm-hmm. The armoring is is not who we really are, right? Who we really are is when we can be nakedly laid bare uh, with the people we really love and trust. And it takes so much energy to have that armor, but we have to have it, right? And we're dealing, we're using that armor to deal with past stuff and present stuff. It's just a it becomes a part of who we are.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and those things kind of, um they echo throughout our lives, right? Like our past traumas, something else will come up that triggers it and reminds us of it. And so it's this interesting kind of cyclical journey of not only like working through your trauma and working towards healing, whatever that looks like. But again, knowing that it's not this, this straight trajectory of working through that, right? These things are going to come up and I you know, I find even in talking about sexuality all the time, there's always things that when I'm in that like professional frame of mind, I'm like, yeah, I can deal with this. And later, you know, if, if a question or a comment or something really sits with me, I'm like, okay, why am I feeling uncomfortable or triggered by this? Like, clearly, this is something that then I have to sit with. Um, yes. And it's a lot when you take on that emotional work, you know, in your work itself, but also in your life.
1: Yes. And and it really is cyclical. And, you know, in the section about loss, you know, I'm talking about um, the death of my mother, as well as talking about uh, an adult relationship loss, right? Like it's Mm -hmm. these things, yeah, they ping off of each other. And that's good. Um, It helps us to really understand in a more deep way, I think, when we can Go back, and you know. Then there's in in the in the trauma section. You know, there's a piece about childhood bullying, and then an adult experience of
0: racism.
1: Right? They ping off of each other. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, you can't separate those experiences from each other. The other uh, the the imagery that really was is quite powerful throughout is the lilies, and it makes me think about kind of growth and again that cycle seasonal they caught that oh i loved i loved it i'm i'm also a gardener and people i mean (laughs) rosanna can see me i'm wearing my overalls right now which is my preferred outfit uh also because i just garden constantly um and have these beautiful orange lilies that are like hopefully about to bloom but yeah the the lilies were just beautiful because they signify and are such a a fragrant thing as well so as i was reading it you could like Smell it and see it and everything as well, but yeah, that that growth throughout and the lilies just very um, delicately placed throughout. I'm not sure how else to explain it, but talk to me a bit about the significance of weaving that in there.
1: Yeah, so that was just a fun craft-based um, piece that I was playing with. So um, it's it's kind of fun in a poetry collection and maybe even in a short story collection to have an element reappearing and reappearing and reappearing and hopefully it creates um, a sense of wonder Mm. or delight or opens a question in the reader's mind and I'm so glad you caught it because it is very delicately placed Um, but yeah it's it's about healing and rebirth that's what those lilies are there for. Mm-hmm. And I almost asked, you know, when I was thinking about the cover, I thought about, oh, should we put lilies on the cover? And I was like,
0: no, I want people to find the lily. <laughs> it did feel like a kind of a little treasure hunt or something. Uh, yeah, there was something about it that, I don't know why it just felt very validating as well. Like I'm in the middle of reading this poem and I'm immersed in it. And I'm like, oh, there's lilies. Ooh, like it felt like a little, um, like a little prize, right? And talking about, weeding around the lilies and like connecting to your mother and so many other ways that it's, you know, and lilies are very much a part of when I think of lilies, I think of rebirth, but I also think of grief. Like that's always like the the flower that we yes. think of when we think of grief. So there was such a beautifully done having something that is alive talking about when we were dealing with loss, when we were dealing with trauma, they they were beautifully put together throughout.
1: Thank you for noticing them. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Asking a gardener, we're like, yeah, is, is there flowers involved? Perfect. I'm I'm <laughs> sold. I'm here for it.
1: <laughs> you know, the other little um, fun craft thing, um, and this was something that my editor, Sharon Paul Rupri had suggested, was finding in each section a way to build in some variation of the title into each poem. And it wasn't that hard to do because the theme of you still look the same and all of what that can mean in terms of perception and misperception and how we look at things um, was coming up in at least in one poem in each section. So um, I kind of highlighted that by repeating some of those words as well. It's it's fun to play with the craft, right? Like poems always start with this kernel of something that the poet is experiencing or observing in the world so it starts from that personal place but then you edit and you edit and you reorder and you you find the interesting wordplay and the line breaks and these extra these extra symbols and all of that and that's what makes it really fun for the writer i think yeah
0: what well, makes it fun as a reader as well right when you have something that is is playful as well, right? I think that kind of to me leads back to that accessibility piece. Like if I'm reading through it and I'm like, okay, like I'm, I don't even know like where to begin. I'm like, okay, I, I recognize like there's a little ping in my brain of like, hmm, there was lilies in this one. Like I wonder if that's going to come up again. Or like you were saying before, there's an interesting break in the lines or how, how might this be like spoken out loud or yeah, there was, there was a really nice way to to kind of get into like the playfulness of like the writing itself, right? Which is that combination of the things like that kernel of truth, but also recognizing that, you know, even though words are imperfect at expressing how we feel about things, how can we like condense, condense, condense into something that feels, you know, the most honest or true to speak about this experience that we're having.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, one other piece about accessibility, um, I have made this into an audio book. Mm. And um, so maybe some people who are a little um, intimidated by poetry might enjoy it as an audiobook. And it's mostly narrated by Ulka Simone Mohanty. Um, I, I only narrate the haiku because they're the short poems and her voice is so much nicer.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so she's doing the bulk of it. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, I, I, you know, had, had not experienced that many, like, audiobooks before, but then having, you know, listened to seven was just such a rich experience that I can, I highly recommend folks if they want to, to listen to the audiobook. And I think quite often with poetry, you know, it depends how we want to experience it, but it's meant to be listened to, right? To hear mm-hmm. what is the meaning that this that this I don't know what you would say. Author orator has decided to place and they emphasize on certain things.
1: Most most poets will also say that um, when they're editing, they're editing it by reading it out loud mm. to find um, like what what are some of the sounds that are happening? What are the rhymes if there are rhymes? Um, how how does how does the rhythm of one line um, connect with the rhythm of another line? Mm -hmm. So yes, it is, it is meant to be quite oral in that, uh,
0: hearing oral orality version of oral.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
0: I want to talk, I want to talk about Swipe Left as well, but maybe we'll, we'll put it in the context, um, Swipe Left and Boundaries were two poems that really, uh, spoke to me that were playful, but also like, hmm. There is some there is uh, some learning to, to especially in the boundaries poem. Um, and I want to talk a bit more um, about this idea of being like a good woman. Uh, and people who are listening, I'm using bunny ears around when we say good woman. I recently shared something on Instagram, just a, a story of of someone talking about how when we think about women, we quite often think about them in relationship to to someone else, usually like a man. Of like, oh, if you're a sister or a wife or a mother or whatever else. And so a lot of these ideas around what it means to be good, quote unquote, is our relationality to others. What are we performing or doing for others and not at all about this person as an individual. So I kind of want to talk about that. I want to hear your thoughts about, you know, what does it mean to be like a good woman, how those ideas impact us. And then maybe we'll weave that together with some of the the poems and also the main themes that that come up and used to look the same.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, this um about a year ago I read um, Burnout by the Nagoski sisters, and um you know they talk about people who are socialized female as having human giver syndrome, and it is very much about what we do in relation and what we do for others, and even our sexualities are very much framed in that way right our our sexuality doesn't belong to us you know that's that's not what we're taught we're we have to relearn that sexuality belongs to us and all the patriarchal violence all the all the policing that happens to our bodies is really about us not so we're not supposed to own our bodies mm-hmm. so that's something I thought a lot about, um, as in my forties, as I was exploring dating and then exploring trauma, how, Mm -hmm. how do we come back to owning our own bodies? And sometimes we don't even know that we
0: don't like it's all, it's sometimes very subtle. Mm -hmm. I feel like there's so much messaging around. It's always the performative of how you are perceived, right? Of like, well, you can't be too interested in sex. Well, cause then you're a slut, you know, can't, can't do that. And you can't be too guarded because then you're a prude. And you know, like you have to find that right balance of like, I'm sexy, but not too sexy. And like all of these things. And like you said, that's always about kind of this perspective outside of yourself and how people are viewing your body and your sexuality in ways and not at all about an internal sense of what that is and then deciding if you want to physically express that to the world and i just have found you know so often and this can be for uh, for folks of across different gender identities but i think as you were saying before being socially like raised female there's a lot of pressure on policing our sexuality so we just self-regulate we self-police because it is yes. so much a part of what we are taught to do to uh, safeguard our purity or something along those lines, which is all bullshit, by the way.
1: <laughs> yeah. that, that that could just be like the byline, all
0: that stuff is bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like, slash shame, patriarchy, all of it, bullshit. That's <laughs> Yeah. So I just have, I've, I've thought a lot to um, kind of bringing it back to our idea around intersectionality uh, earlier and talking about identity, right? And that's going to have an impact on how we understand ourselves sexually as well. So I don't know if you want to talk about and having kind of thinking about used to look the same now is out in the world and people can read it and, and engage with it in ways that work for them. But has that brought up any feelings of, I don't know, like social expectation of like, oh, am I a good woman, because I'm sharing such personal things, you know, maybe as as a therapist or as a woman, how that is kind of feeling for you to have something um, maybe quite intimate shared with the world. You know, intellectually,
1: it's, I think we have to talk about all of these things, unless we talk about these things, and they're out in the open, they don't get healed. So that's my intellectual belief about all of this. Of course, there is a little part of me you know, I, I think of it as my inner child who was taught don't talk about these things that is saying, oh, have I said too much? Or have I written too much? And what are people going to think? And, you know, is this going to be dangerous? Am I going to get in trouble? Yeah. And, um, you know, I really like internal family systems therapy work and working with um inner inner parts and so i can soothe those parts and i can say of course it's okay and it's really safe and um it really doesn't matter um what people think and um this is going to land and uh, for people who need it it's going to reach people who need it it's going to help people who need it it's going to be fun for people who need
0: that absolutely and i think you know finding ways to uh to self-soothe, right? Like you were saying that idea of like, it is, it is okay. And being able to have that dialogue with you, with your inner child, you know, that inner voice that's expressing those, those fears. Um And, and again, kind of getting outside of those kind of people pleaser tendencies, which is something that I'm like, oh gosh, I feel like I've spent the last you know, 10 years unpacking. And I'm like, Oh, my gosh, like, I'm only 30. And I'm starting to unpack these things. And I'm like, Oh, this is gonna be at 51. It's still a work in progress for me. Hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Can you imagine if you were like, Yeah, it's done. I don't I don't I don't give a shit what other people think I just do what I want. (laughs) I mean, that would be amazing. But I also be like, wow, how did you do that? Like to share your secret?
1: I'll tell you in 45 years from now how I did it.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll have this conversation when uh, yeah, we're, we're in our you know 70s, 80s, 90s and be like, okay, now do we still give a shit or have we gotten over that? We've run out of give a shits and now we're just living our best lives. <laughs> right. yeah. I
1: hope. I mean, I hope by the time I'm 96, right? Yeah.
0: Oh, that would be amazing. Uh the the one thing I wanted to to share as well is um uh, when I shared that video around being a good woman I had you know I think I had something like 60 or 70 comments from people on Instagram just being like yes either being like I feel called out or I am such a people pleaser and many people kind of resonating with with what was shared. And one person, uh, wrote in particular, they said, LMAO, take this and add being a religious minority in India and an ethnic minority in Canada and <laughs> brain explode emoji. Um, and that person sent that to me and I was like, yes, like how those, you know, you, we cannot separate being a woman from so many aspects of our lives. Um, and I just found that resonating. Like I read that and was like, did you know that I was going to be doing this interview? How did they know that that was me? <laughs> um, Absolutely. Of, yeah, I kind of sang you that quote and I wondered, I don't know, maybe those those layering of identities together and maybe how that, I don't know, how that resonated for you or um, I'm thinking a lot about the boundaries poem, but yeah, just generally your your thoughts on having read that.
1: Yeah. So, you know, I think that, yes, all of those intersectionalities, all of those, all of the experiences we've had, all of the ways that we've learned to be good in the world and to protect ourselves really end up having an impact on how we are in the world and how much human giver syndrome we've got, how much people-pleasing we've got. Because to be good means to be safe. Mm. Mm-hmm. Or that's what we think.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Or to be perceived as safe or good from these different lenses that we are trying to uphold throughout our lives. Uh, I wonder as maybe a way to, to wrap up our conversation, would you mind reading, uh, boundaries for us? Cause I feel like for myself, I read it and was like, oof, I feel like I'm the band-aid one, but I need, I need the other one. <laughs> yes. Okay. And, you know, this
1: was really inspired um, by having a conversation, you know, when, when you're trying to figure out a situation and you end up talking with a friend who maybe has really good hardline boundaries and isn't such a people pleaser. And then you realize like, oh, how do they, how do they think that way? How do they, how do they know how to do those things anyway? So that's what this, that, that's what inspired this boundaries. Yours are tensor bandages, stretchy yet firm, holding you in, keeping tendons warm, injuries protected. Mine are band-aids from back of drawer, never the right size, adhesive dried up. They slip off at awkward moments. I wish sometimes, especially when, or perhaps before, I skinned a knee, sprained an ankle, I had your first aid kit.
0: Hmm. I think about that first aid kit is our, uh, I don't know the, the toolkit that I'm thinking back to that armor piece that we have, right. I'm imagining all of us entering the world also with like a tool belt with a little first aid kit and everything being like, okay, boundaries sorted dealing with all of these things. Yeah. And the idea that those, We're still trying to assert our boundaries, but they come off at awkward times. They're not never the right size. All of these things kind of forgotten something we need to dust off and be like, oh, right, this is something I should have done as you're sitting there, having had your boundaries crossed. And it's like how that learning, at least for myself, obviously can't speak for other people, feels like I need to uh, experience it again and again to be like, right. I just need to assert that at the beginning.
1: One of the hard things about boundaries is – And why they're always, I think, a work in progress is because they are moving targets. We're always dealing with a new situation, a new person, um, maybe our own change in the process that makes us have to stop and rethink like, Mm -hmm. oh, what feels right here and what doesn't feel right here. Mm -hmm. And most of us have had our feelings invalidated 100 million times. And so, to really be able to stop and say, "This doesn't feel right, this does feel right,"
0: is work for many of us. Mm-hmm. And when work that requires a, a lot of self-awareness, I think what's hard as well as is, is with boundaries is that it's important on us to set them. But it also doesn't mean that if someone crosses or violates our boundaries, realizing that that is you know also not our fault when these things happen right i think there's a real fine line of you know we can practice and practice our boundaries as much as possible but having having all of us consider our boundaries would really be the the best way moving forward to not have that um i don't know miscommunication i'm thinking about like non monogamy now where it's like you know uh, Not that everyone does it, but you are confronted with boundaries so early on that you have to talk about it openly. And that is the only way to move forward, ensuring that everyone is feeling safe, is feeling secure um, in whatever that looks like for each of us.
1: Yes. Yes. And I, I think that like there are so many ways that we sometimes violate our own boundaries as well, because we just we don't know what the options are right? Or we don't know how to talk to people about our boundaries. So I think about that more, more so, I mean, in the trauma section, I talk about how other people violate the boundaries, but I also do a lot of thinking about how do I enforce my own? How do I not let go of my own?
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's interesting. I'll kind of whenever I'm talking about, you know, sexual health and I'll initiate a conversation depending on which age I'm working with, but really should be for across the ages, how uh, a sense of self-esteem and self-worth is going to be one of the most important things that's going to help us in all of these conversations, right? And dealing with our bodily autonomy and setting boundaries and being able to uh, make choices and communicate, you know, with potential partners. We always have to start with Particularly in the world that is telling us that, you know, some people, some bodies, some everything else are better than others. The first thing we need to start with is like unpacking all of that and having a sense of our own dignity and worth in the world. And that's how we move forward. Any final thoughts you want to share with us either? I mean, I feel like we've covered a lot of like ground today. I've really enjoyed kind of. I don't want to say meanderings. It feels like an intentional one, but like the path that we followed today. But anything you want to say in general about, I don't know, what you learned in your 40s about sex or about you still look the same? The, The floor is yours. Okay. Yeah. I learned a
1: ton through my 40s. I think the biggest thing that I did learn about was what you just talked about around self worth, self compassion. I, you know, one of the things we didn't talk about um, in this conversation was that perimenopause for me started at 42 and it still continues at 51. Mm -hmm. And that was something that, you know, we didn't talk about. It feels like as much a decade ago. Now you go on Instagram and you look up the hashtag perimenopause and there are so many accounts and I'm so glad for that. Mm -hmm. But back then it came on as a bit of a mystery and I had to really search for information So perimenopause was also happening through this whole time. And perimenopause demands a kind of self-care that um, I never felt forced, almost forced into before. So perimenopause came um, with brain fog. It came with abrupt mood changes. uh, It came with some fatigue, some sleeping disturbances. And while I had always been like, pretty good at self-care. I had to up my self-care game in a whole new way. And so that that was good, right? So I was I was doing that while also figuring out online dating while I was grieving a past relationship, while I was dealing with trauma. Mm. And so it was the coming together of a whole lot of compassion with all of this disruption. I think mm-hmm. that's what I—that's what I really learned in my forties, and I hope—I hope my fifties are a bit more of a coast now because I have more of those skills. <laughs> Crossing fingers.
0: Yeah, all of your learning from your forties has now manifested in your fifties. You're like smooth sailing. Perimenopause—we got you. We'll just—we'll just, we'll just whoosh, head right on into the next steps and be ready—ready ready to face it. Crossing fingers. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me today on the Love Doctor podcast. On the next episode, I'm talking to registered clinical counselor, Sarah Watson. Sarah helps me answer some of the more tricky questions that I've been sent, and it is a heartfelt, intense, and intimate conversation. If you have a question, send me a voice memo to thelovedoctorpodcast at gmail.com, or you can message me on Instagram at dr.leotide.com. You can also learn more about the projects that I'm involved in, what books I recommend, and the amazing folks that I have on the podcast on my website at www.leahtidy.com. Until then, folks, stay healthy, stay safe, stay consensual.